We've been looking at the doctrine of God the Father. If you remember in the first message, I called upon you to affirm the existence of God the Father in what the Bible teaches, namely that God is assumed to exist in the Word of God and that He is our Creator and therefore is to be worshipped and adored. In the second, third, and fourth messages, respectively, of this series, I started talking to you about God the Father's attributes. First, regarding His holiness. Second, regarding His sovereignty. And third, regarding His providence. And in the next three messages of this series, I want to show you also what the Bible teaches regarding His grace, mercy, and love. I think that's a beautiful balance as we have seen holiness, sovereignty, and providence, and now grace, mercy, and love. And for this morning, I desire all of us to see both afresh and anew the grace of God. Now, as I have done with these attributes of sovereignty and providence, I want to give you a three-point outline covering the grace of God. First, I want to define what that means, that word grace. I want to define it for you. And then secondly, I want to show you the biblical basis for it, the biblical basis. And then third and finally, I want to speak of both the need for the grace of God and the means of acquiring the grace of God in our lives. And so I start this morning with the definition, the definition of grace. We might say right off the bat that this matter of the grace of God is really more of an aspect of what He does in relation to us, His creatures, than it is a static attribute of His person. I'll tell you what I mean. Listen to the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible. Very, very helpful definition of the grace of God. It says, quote, As a general definition, the doctrine of grace pertains to God's activity rather than to His nature. Although God is gracious, this trait of His nature is revealed only in relation to His created works and to His redemptive enterprise. In other words, grace is to be understood in terms of a dynamic expression of the divine personality rather than as a static attribute of God's nature. And then it goes on to say this, very helpfully, grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion, I love this, with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. God is gracious in action. That's a great definition. Did you see it? Did you catch it? Grace is the dimension of divine activity that enables God to confront human indifference and rebellion with an inexhaustible capacity to forgive and to bless. Another definition, the late Dr. Philip Edgecombe Hughes writing in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology, says grace is, quote, that of undeserved blessing, undeserved blessing, freely bestowed on humans by God, end quote. Henry Holloman, one of my former theology professors at Talbot Theological Seminary, said this about grace, all that God does 
in undeserved love to benefit human beings in general and his children in particular. T.H.L. Parker writes this about grace. The essence of the doctrine of grace is that God is for us. What is more, He is for us who in ourselves are against Him. More still, He is not for us merely in a general attitude, but has effectively acted towards us. And then he says this, Grace is summed up in the name Jesus Christ. Still more, in the New Dictionary of Theology, grace indicates, quote, an objective relation of undeserved favor by a superior to an inferior, which in the case of divine grace towards mankind accompanies the ideas of covenant and election. In other words, it says, quote, the very sense of the word, that is grace, implies the freedom of grace. It is wholly unmerited, not evoked by the creature's disposition. End quote. You know what all those definitions are saying? Grace, the grace of God, divine favor, is wholly unmerited. It is undeserved. We shouldn't receive it. And yet God gives us His grace, that is, God's grace toward sinners, even, the Bible says, while we yet hate Him. God's riches at Christ's expense. You ever heard that acronym, grace? Like faith, forsaking all, I trust Him. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. God... Instead of giving us what we deserve, that is death and hell and judgment, He gives us what we don't deserve through what Christ has done on the cross for sinners. That's God's unmerited favor. Left to ourselves, we merit judgment. We merit condemnation. We merit perdition. But because of God's unmerited undeserved favor and kindness to us, we receive through Christ and what He did to pay the penalty for our sin upon the virtue of His death on the cross, God gives us the richness of His grace. This is a stunning way, beloved, to see what God is in His character when He bestows upon us something that we wholly undeserve. What a wonderful response from our Lord. That's the definition of grace. Don't ever forget it. Don't ever lose sight of it. Don't ever take it for granted. And don't ever assume that you've earned it. I would never assume that I've merited something that when I look at the Bible and then I look at my own experience, I find the marvel of grace because I'm given not what I deserve, but I'm given what I wholly don't deserve. Grace. Grace. Even the Word itself seems to flow off your lips as something that is marvelous and wonderful grace. Let me give you a biblical definition of it, a biblical basis for God's grace. And I think with that as a rudimentary 
discussion by theologians of what grace is, even if they fell short of telling us what it is and what's all about grace, we would go to the Bible to really tell us truly what grace is. And by far, the most common word in the Hebrew text of Scripture is the Hebrew word hain, hain, transliterated into our English as H-E-N, pronounced hain, which could, by the way, variously be translated as grace, graciousness, favor, kindness, even beauty, adornment. It is all about grace. Turn in your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. And as Pastor Todd said a moment ago, I am going to go through many, many passages of Scripture because I want to overwhelm you with grace. I want you to get a drink from grace like a fire hose. Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. And we're going to go through these very, very quickly. If you can't, in speed, turn to every one of these passages, at least write them down, or at least mark how many times I use the word grace, okay? Genesis 6, 8. But Noah found favor, or grace, could be translated either way, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Chapter 18 of Genesis. That's Noah. This is Abraham. Genesis chapter 18 Verse 1, the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found grace, favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. He knew he was on holy ground. Chapter 19. Verse 19, Lot, behold, your servant has found grace or favor in your sight. He was about to be delivered. You've shown me great kindness in saving my life. Chapter 39, Joseph. Joseph received the grace of God. Chapter 39, verse 4. Joseph found grace in the sight of his master, that is, his human master. And why did he find grace there? Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him grace in the sight of the keeper of the prison. How about Moses, Exodus chapter 33? Moses knew of the grace of God. Chapter 33, verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, God says, I will do. Why? For you have found grace in my sight, and I know you by name. This is our God. He's a God of grace. Look at chapter 34, verse 6. It uses Several words to describe this aspect of our God. This is our God. Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Psalm 84. 
Psalm 84, verse 11. Again, just going through several passages to show you that the Bible is replete with the idea of the graciousness of our God. Psalm 84, 11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows grace and honor. That's who our God is. Do you know this God of grace? Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3. This also shows us magnanimously the grace of God and the wisdom of God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 4. So, if you pursue the Word of God, if you pursue the God of the Word, if you know of His steadfast love, according to verse 3, and God's faithfulness, and if you don't forsake them, if you bind them around your neck, if you write them on the tablet of your heart, verse 4 says, so you will find grace. And good success in the sight of God and man. Look at verse 22. And they, that is, finding God's wisdom, will be life for your soul and adornment, grace for your neck. Verse 34. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives grace. Grace. I don't know how many times I've already mentioned grace. I may be up to 25 by this point. I hope I get to 1,000. Because it's all of grace. It's all of grace. Unmerited favor by the favor of God. Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31 tells us unmistakably of the grace of God. Even God's grace in the midst of a remnant of people whom God was saving to bring them ultimately as a remnant called the nation of Israel into the new covenant. And Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 1, at the time declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found what? Grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to them from far away. That's grace, my friends. I've loved you with an everlasting love. That's grace. Therefore, I've continued my faithfulness to you. That's grace. Again, I will build you, he says, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim Arise and let us go up to Zion to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And that's exactly what God's going to do. He promised them He would give them grace. And the remnant of Israel will be delivered and placed into the new covenant of grace. God is a God of grace. How about Zechariah? Zechariah. I know. Happiness is finding someone who knows where Zechariah is. Zechariah. This is, this is a, a marvelous opportunity for us to know of God's grace. This is, that, this is that great text that speaks, as it were, of the opportunity for God, the Lord Jesus Christ in human flesh, to be seen by His own people. In chapter 12, verse 10, you know it well, this great verse 
Again, speaking of the future time, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, yet another Hebrew term that speaks of grace, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, that's looking on Jesus. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus will come, and when he comes, he'll come in a spirit of grace. That's, that's just scratching the surface of what the Old Testament says about God's grace. Just a few, few verses that speak in an Old Testament sense of pain, God's grace. How about the New Testament? Charis. That's the Greek word for grace. Charis. We might spell it in English, C-H-A-R-I-S. You might even hear at some point of a, a girl who is named by her parents, Charis. That's the word grace. It's used 156 times in the New Testament. You think that the New Testament is accentuating grace by listing it that many times? Of course. If I'm not mistaken, it's even the word charis that's used most often to translate the Hebrew word hain in the Greek translation of the Old Testament so that we can see the link, as it were, when they saw in the Hebrew text what the New Testament writers would have seen as grace, therefore linking it together with us. Grace, the grace of God. Look at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Notice how John starts even his prologue to his gospel. He says in, for instance, verse 14, and the word that is the, the logos, Christ, Jesus coming in the flesh, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace. Full of grace. Filled up with grace. Grace and truth. Verse 16, And from Him, His fullness, we have all received, what is it? Grace upon grace. Just stack it up, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That is, it was personified in Christ. Remember when we studied through the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1? I didn't say thematically so much about grace. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 Paul says, through whom we have received grace. By the way, whenever you see the idea of grace being bestowed, it's usually followed in some sense, if not explicitly, implicitly by something like this, grace which is given. Grace given. Grace which is received. You see, it keeps emphasizing for us the idea that God's grace is not something we earn. It's not something we can come up with on our own. It's outside of us. It's alien to us. It is grace that is received. That's what he says in chapter 1, verse 5. Look at chapter 3, verse 24. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I love this, verse 24. And are justified by what? His grace. As a what? It's a gift. Grace gift. Grace gift. Grace gift. Grace is given. Grace is received. Grace is bestowed. We're justified by His 
grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 16, using Abraham as an example of one who was justified by faith alone. Chapter 4, verse 16, this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Do you realize, believer, that the very promise of God that you're going to go to heaven rests on God's grace. Oh, it is through faith. That's why he says it it depends on faith. But faith has an object, and the object is Christ. And Christ promises those who come to him that their eternal salvation rests on his grace. You say, forever? Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We stand in grace. That's why when someone comes along and says, Well, I just don't think I believe in eternal security. I say, but it says here we stand in grace. We're in the realm of grace. We're in the sphere of grace Grace is how we live. It's not just the grace that comes to me at salvation. It's the grace that sustains me throughout the whole of my Christian life. Verse 15 of that same chapter, Romans 5. The free gift is not like the trespass that is the trespass of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Chapter 6, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but you are under what? Grace. Grace. No wonder it says it so many times because we so often forget. I said don't take it for granted a moment ago, but we so often do, myself included. We stand in grace. We live by grace. We're in the sphere of grace. We're under, no longer under the dominion of sin and the slavery of sin, but we are not under law, but under grace. Chapter 11 of Romans, verse 6. There's a remnant, he says, that's Israel chosen by grace. But he says, notice Romans eleven six. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Why? Otherwise, grace would no longer be what? Grace. It's all of grace. Second Corinthians chapter 9. Even in the sense of our, our giving, our financial resources and our help of the poor, even in the context maybe even of our own poverty, Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 14, while they long for you and pray for you, Paul says, because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. You've got God's grace to give. You've got God's grace to live. And you live in His grace, and it's surpassing grace, and you can give financially because of the inexpressible gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Galatians chapter 2, verse 9. When James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, Paul says, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. In other words, grace became evident throughout his life. He was living out the grace of God. It changed him. Same chapter, verse 21. I do not, Paul says, nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, law law-keeping, 
then Christ died for no purpose. No, that nullifies grace if you think the Christian life is about working toward heaven. Ephesians chapter 2, and you know I'd get there. That's a great book that extols the grace of God. Chapter 2, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us, that is God, alive together with Christ. And then this parenthetical statement, by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. You say, why do you keep saying grace? Because the Bible keeps saying grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Colossians 1.6, a ringing theme throughout our Bibles. Colossians 1.6, Paul says, The gospel has come to you as indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. 2 Timothy 1.9, this is the grace of God. Do you bask in it? Do you know of this grace? 2 Timothy 1.9 This is what God wants us to know. He saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus. Titus 2 Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That is everyone who would ever believe. Chapter 3, verse 7, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Even God's throne is depicted as an entire throne of grace. Just come to it. Just come to the king and allow the king to bestow upon you grace. And yes, it is true, according to Jude 4, that there are actually people who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, loose living. They think that grace is so gracious that they assume they can do anything they want and there are no holds barred and there are no rules. We're just going to live any way we want and there are people who subvert God's grace. Yes, that's true. But that's not the true grace of God. You see, all of these passages that I've shown you are things that show us that grace does something to us. It changes us. Because once you see that you do not merit the grace of God, then you're humbled. And when you're humbled, you change. And when you change, you extol the grace of God even more. Now, somebody might come along Right, right around this time and say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. Are you telling me that this, this grace of God that you've described is something that happens to everyone? Well, I do need to make a distinction here because there is such a thing in our Bibles and theologians have rightly discerned it called, among other things, the difference between common grace and saving grace or special grace. And it is true that our Bibles do tell us that there is a differentiation between certain aspects of the grace of God. And it is true that sometimes when you read about the grace of God, or by implication, even if it doesn't use the exact wording, 
there is something less than some of the passages that I've shared with you. And so I want this morning, just ever so briefly, to tell you the differences between common grace and special grace, okay? Let me give you a couple of things, maybe three of them, about common grace. Common grace. First, number one, I want to show you some passages that speak of God's common grace, as seen, for instance, in the common order of things, God's creation, uh, man's sustenance, and even man having life and breath in his soul. That's, that's the first kind of substantiation in our Bibles about common grace. It is true that every single person in the world, without distinction, and who has ever lived and who ever will live, is a recipient of God's grace in some sense. We would call it God's common grace, or maybe you might call it God's benevolence, or God's regard, or God's, God's common love, or His beneficence to those for whom He has created, and even His creation itself. For instance, look back in Genesis chapter 1, and I'll show you this. I was doing a renewal of vows service last night for one of the couples of our church who've been married for 30 years, and one of the passages that I read that reinforced to me again was the idea that God has common regard. He's graciously, in a common way, giving Himself to His creation. Genesis chapter 1, look at verse 27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created him. Male and female He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the flesh, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. Notice that. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Every time somebody eats, whether they're a believer or unbeliever, God is gracious, right? God's gracious. Every unbeliever, even if he denies it, even if he rejects it, falls under what we could say is the common grace of God. Because God has created all of these plant-yielding pieces of food for them. God saw that everything that He made, verse 31, was good. It was very good. He says, I give it to you. That's His grace. That, that's who He is in His person. Look at chapter 9 of Genesis. This is another example of the common grace of God. God blessed Noah, his son, said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon, upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. You say, what's gracious about that? Think about that. My wife and I said it to each other just a few weeks ago. We were sitting in our house and I said to her, You realize that even if we were unbelievers, but certainly as believers, praising God about this, we're in our house, we think we're secure, but a thunderstorm could ravage this place, tornado, a hurricane if you live in Florida or Texas, if you're living in another part of the world, a tsunami could just totally devastate everything about us. Or even this, you're laying in your bed, you think you're totally secure in your house, you think your structure is what is going to save you, and it is only the grace of God that all of the animals that live in the woods, and sometimes they come out 
and they show themselves to us, whether they be lions or tigers or bears, they could come and completely destroy you by coming into your house, by knocking through windows, by getting in however they want, and they would kill you. They would destroy you. And they don't because of what? The grace of God. The grace of God. I mean, we, th- we think we're so secure. We think once we go in our house and we lock the doors, we're safe. It is only by the grace of God that God says, the way I'm going to structure creation is that I'm not going to allow all of the beasts of the field to overtake you, and I'm going to make them instinctually know that you are over them. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. That's God's grace. Because those animals, for the most part, are so much more powerful and quick than we are. They could ravage us. Did you hear about the lady recently? I sent this email to some of our new friends who've moved from California, the Scheidemans, to be members of our church. And just outside their previous home in Bakersfield, California, in Caliente, there was a lady who was just walking her two dogs in a rural area of Caliente, California, and all of a sudden a bear came out of the woods and just just completely ripped her face. She had no idea what was going on. The dogs ran away, but she had enough adrenaline, enough sense of mind to get in a car, drive herself to a fire station, and then they airlifted her to UCLA for massive amounts of surgery on her face and neck. That, that could be any of us. It's, it's the grace of God. And unbelievers ought to recognize that even the grace of God is here when it says, I created the world in such a way that man is going to be over the beast. That's the grace of God. Look at Psalm 8. This is is the idiocy of people thinking they're in charge of their own destiny. This is incredible that somebody thinks that they're on their own and they don't need the grace of God and that they're okay. Psalm 8, verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Ah, but verse 5, Yet you have made him, that is man, mankind, a little, little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's the grace of God that even the animal kingdom has been placed under mankind's feet. Even unbelievers ought to recognize that. They don't. They should recognize the grace of God. They don't. Remember... In Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. Unbelievers ought to recognize that when rain comes down, when the sun goes up, it's the grace of God. They don't, but they should, because it's God's common regard. By the way, read Psalm 104 sometime and read of the very exposition in Scripture of common grace in creation. Read John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. That Jesus Christ is the light that lights every man that comes into the world. Read Hebrews 1. That Jesus Christ upholds the very world by the word of His power. That's grace, my friends. That's common grace. So, whether we're talking about the animal kingdom, the plant kingdom, whether we're talking about 
the idea of creation itself, how it's upheld, it's all the grace of God, even if unbelievers don't recognize it. And I told you a moment ago, even God's common grace, secondly, in marriage and relationships in general. Did you hear me read you Genesis 1, 27 and 28 a moment ago? God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Chapter 2, verse 23, man said, This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know that in a sense, whenever anybody marries, even unbelievers, that's the grace of God. Because God created marriage. He created it as a grace. Even chapter 9 of Genesis, by man's blood shall his blood be shed. That is God, by grace, creating a world where there's moral order, where there's punishment for sin, so that this world would not just be a world of anarchy. There is a moral order to a government, or can be, Romans 13, verses 1 to 10. There's moral order in the universe as God has set it up in a way that controls the creation that He's made. And you say, yeah, but it sometimes looks really out of control to me. Well, sometimes it may look like that, but guess what? If God took His restraining grace, His common grace, away completely, what would the world look like? You want to talk about anarchy. You want to talk about being out of control. I mean, even, even human relationships, even friendships among unbelievers. Proverbs seventeen seventeen. A friend sticks closer than a brother. A brother is born from adversity. That's not just for believers. That's for unbelievers. Any, any unbeliever who has a friend who tells him something that's right is a friend. That's God's common grace. To all friends, that's God's common grace. There's a third kind of common grace. It's this, and you, maybe you haven't thought about this. Common grace is seen in God's kindness not to completely destroy the earth immediately or to destroy man as soon as he sins. That's common grace. You ever thought about that? You ever thought the grace that was upon your life as you were growing up and the more you sinned against God and the more you flouted your fist in the face of God saying, I won't obey you, that every day you lived and every breath you took was the common grace of God. It was His kindness toward you. It was His kindness toward me. How was it that I ever got through those teenage years and I was sitting there as a freshman in Arkansas State University and I prayed to receive Christ as a result of reading the Gospels? How did I ever live up to that point? It was the grace of God. It was the grace of God. That's, that's what God's grace is. You remember Jonah in chapter 4, verse 2? He says, now, now Lord, I told you that if these Ninevites were presented with you as Savior, they would repent, and now I'm mad about it. Because I knew you to be a gracious God and forgiving, and I didn't want them to come to you, but they did, and you told them to come by my witness, and now I'm pretty grieved about it. That's, that's the common grace of God, that anybody comes to Christ. In Nehemiah chapter 9, read that, verses 21 to 31 at your leisure. Nehemiah chapter 9 says about the children of Israel, they did this and they did this and they did this and they did this and then they floundered themselves at you and you continued to give them grace and grace and grace. Think about the children of Israel through the 40 years of the wilderness wandering. God was gracious to them. He gave them manna. 
He took care of all their needs. He loved them. He cared for them. And guess what? All of them but two died in the wilderness. And yet all of that time, it was grace, 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 grace. That's common grace. It's just God's grace that the world doesn't go up in a puff of smoke because God could do it. He'd be righteous to do it. You know, even with Noah's rainbow, when God says, I covenant, and by the way, it says, I covenant not just with Noah, but I covenant with the earth not to ever destroy it again by a flood. That's common grace. That's God's grace. To say, I promise not to destroy the earth again as I just did. That's common grace. Any unbeliever who believes in the account of Noah and the flood, whether they believe it's a universal flood or not, ought to be looking at that text and saying to themselves, I better repent because God made a promise that I don't deserve. He could destroy the earth again by flood, except for His promise. And He made a promise, and that's gracious, that He would never do it again. That's God's grace. Even Romans 1. Verse 18 and following. You know how it talks that hideous list there about man suppressing the truth and righteousness and he's sitting on the lid of truth and he doesn't want the truth out? You know that even in a hideous list of all the sins of mankind and all that they're characterized as being that there's common grace there, you say, how so? Well, that God doesn't immediately destroy them upon the very characteristic nature of their sins, that they have one more breath. That's God's common grace. That's God's common grace. You say, okay, 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 uncle, I give. I believe in the common grace of God. What I want to hear about is the special grace of God. So do I. So do I. Look at Ephesians chapter 1 again. Ephesians chapter 1. Oh, we've got to go so quickly. Ephesians chapter 1. You want to know not just about the common grace of God, but the electing, special, foreordained revelatory grace of God that comes to us in Jesus Christ to give us salvation and sanctification and glorification. I'm going to tell you about it. Ephesians chapter 1. This is the grace of God. Look at verse 6. To the praise of His what? Glorious grace. That's saving grace. That's special grace. That's particular grace. That's what He does in addition to the common grace of God that lets me live on this earth When I'm saved because of the purpose of His will, verse 5, it is to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has blessed us in the Beloved. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the what? The riches of His grace. Glorious grace. The riches of His grace. 1 Timothy 1.14 You want to know about the special grace of God? And the grace of our Lord, Paul says, overflowed for me. Overflowing grace. This is not common grace, folks. This is not just grace for you to live with a breath in your soul. This is God doing even more for undeserving sinners. He is giving us lavish grace. He is giving us rich grace. He's giving us overflowing grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15.10, I, by the grace of God, am what I am. You ever heard somebody, when you ask them, how are you doing? What do they say? By the grace of God, I am what I am. By the grace of God. And His grace, Paul says, toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. You say, that sounds proud. 
Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. There's the balance. You know what I call that? Toiling grace. Toiling grace. To do the work of the ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Can you tell me I'm a little excited about grace? Chapter 4, verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God, extending grace. And you remember in chapter 12, Paul says, Lord, take this thorn, this messenger of Satan away from me. And I entreated the Lord three times. And the Lord said, instead of taking it away, what? My grace is what? Sufficient. Sufficient grace. Toiling grace, extending grace, overflowing grace, lavish grace. 1 Peter 5.10, I call it superabounding grace. 1 Peter 5.10, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what Christians receive from their gracious God. And you know what? Thirdly and finally, there's a need for this grace and there's a means of this grace. You say, what's the need for? So that you can be not considered an unbeliever but a believer. And the only way you can be considered a believer is what? Grace. Grace. The grace of God needs to take initiative in your life before you can do anything. Before you can believe, before you can repent, before you can say, I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, before you can say, I want to serve Jesus Christ with all my soul, I must have grace. And God will give it to you. But there is a warning. There is a warning in our Bibles about this grace Don't presume, as I said before, that someone could say, Oh, there's always time for grace. God's Spirit will not strive with man forever. There's a period when the grace of God will end, at least as far as you are concerned. I'm concerned. That's why Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29 says this, How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Don't outrage the Holy Spirit of grace. You say, how can I do that? He's talking to people who are in the church. He's talking about people who are in the fellowship. He's talking about people who come right up to the point of repenting and believing in Jesus Christ and they draw back from it. They draw back to their old ways, to their old lifestyle, to their old ways of thinking. And he says, don't do that. If you do that, you're going to trample on the Son of God who we have proclaimed to you and you will outrage the Spirit of grace. Don't do that. Chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 15 Another warning, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Oh, my dear friends, if there is anybody out here today and you are standing in need of the grace of God and you have not repented of your sin, you have not believed in Jesus Christ, any of you, young person, older person, 
And you've always thought in your mind, there's always a tomorrow. I'll put it off. Oh, I'm a good person. Oh, I give money. I come here, don't I? And you're trusting in that for your eternal salvation. You're failing to obtain the grace of God. God's grace is unmerited and undeserved. Don't think you can do anything to gain it. That's why Paul said to the Galatians, as he did in Galatians chapter 2, verse 21, if you think you're going to be justified by your works, the works of the law, you're going to nullify the grace of God. Don't do that. You, you'll be severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you've fallen away from grace. Don't spurn the grace of God. That's why Acts 18 speaks so clearly of what God's grace does. Acts 18 verse 27 says so very clearly, And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, notice this, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. That's the only way to believe. Through grace. Through, through the grace of God. That's the only way. You say, I'm a believer. I'm a believer. It's not that I have need of saving grace It's that I have need of sustaining grace. Well, I know that. And that's why it's not just the need of grace, but it's the means of grace. And that's what Christians need. You say, well, what are the means of grace? I I may have even heard that phrase before. What does that really mean? I'll tell you what it means. Just rapid fire. I'll give you about ten of them. Number one, the means of grace is given to us by the Word of God. By the Word of God. The Word of God is a means of grace. That's why 2 Peter 3.18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need the means whereby God imparts His grace to me in a sustaining way. And at the top of that list is the Word of God. Number one, prayer. Secondly, prayer. I talk to God. I receive grace when I communicate and covenant with my God through prayer. Acts 20.32 says, and I commend you by the word of His grace which is able to build you up. I am built up by my knowledge and understanding and application of the word of God and I express that back to God through my prayers. Those are the two main instrumental means of grace. But there are more. There are more. Hebrews 13 verse 9 and 2 Timothy 2.1 Talk about being strengthened by grace. You're strengthened by the grace of God when you say no to certain things and yes to certain other things. Hebrews, that text says, don't be thinking that you can be strengthened by grace, by devotion to foods. It's not going to happen. Be strengthened by grace, the grace of God, through the Word of God and prayer. Financial giving is a means of grace. Financial giving. Do you understand that? Your giving in that offering plate or for somebody's needs, maybe even that no one else knows about, is a means of grace. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, verse 6, verse 19. Evangelizing others is a means of grace. Serving is a means of grace. Baptism is a means of grace. The obedience of baptism is a means of grace. Corporate worship, what you're doing now and not forsaking it, 
as others do, as is their habit. That's a means of grace. Fellowship and the use of the one another's of the New Testament, that's a means of grace. So the Word, prayer, strengthened by grace, by saying no to some things and yes to others, financial giving, evangelizing, serving, obedience and baptism, corporate worship, fellowship, and guess what? The Lord's Supper, what we're going to do right now. That's a means of grace. You say, a means whereby I can be saved? No. It's a way for God to impart His grace to me because I am saved and because He loves me and because He wants me to have grace upon grace. You see, that's that's our God. He's a God of grace. And He wants to lavish it upon you. Lavish grace. Superabounding grace. Overflowing grace. Don't you want that grace? Bow together with me in prayer. Oh, Lord. We need Your grace. We want Your grace. We must have Your grace. And if it is not too presumptuous of us to ask for Your grace, even as we celebrate the Lord's table, Lord, give us grace imparted to us through these elements, not some mystical understanding of the Lord's table, but Lord, by my own examination of my life, am I a Christian? Do I have sin in my life? Have I confessed it? Do I want to seek through prayer and your word to grow in grace, to be strengthened by grace? That's what this table does for us. It causes us to examine ourselves. And it causes us to think about the Lord's death until he comes, and it causes us to proclaim his death. And that's a means of grace. Do I proclaim the Lord's death? Have I told anybody about the death of Christ recently, if I evangelized as a means of grace. Lord, even as we gave this morning in those offering plates, that was a means of grace. When we fellowship together in corporate worship and the one another's as we fellowship in homes like tonight in care groups, that's a means of grace. Oh, Father, please, through every means of grace, through any means of grace, give us this grace and we will thank you In Jesus' name, amen.